The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I guess you could say I'm a fan of the Insight Meditation Center. I live in Davis, and uh, I get down here frequently. I sit on the, the board of the Sati Center and uh, on some committees at Spirit Rock, and I host sitting groups and teach Dharma in Davis. So how many of you are um, new to meditation? Everybody's got a clue. Okay. Because it's interesting that the, um, the, the meditation practice that we start with is pretty much the technology that the Buddha ended with in his teaching when he would, when he would present his teaching and his understanding to people. We, we, uh, you know, we start with, with the actual uh, mental practice of learning to let go and to, to watch our mind working. And, but when the Buddha would arrive in town uh, 2,500 years ago in northeastern India, when he would arrive in town, there wasn't a culture that had some sense about meditation like we do. There were these people who lived out in the woods, and some of them were known to be to meditate. But what was their relevance to a householder? So when the Buddha would show up in town, he would um, he would he would start with a different uh, a different curriculum. And that curriculum has been described uh, as the gradual teaching. The assumption being that that the, that the uh, achievement of, of freedom and peace is something that occurs with practice and over time. And and he uh, he taught in a particular way. This is a, a short little uh, piece from. Uh, the Pali scriptures, which are the texts that record the teachings of the Buddha. Um, I'll just read this little section about how he arrived at uh, a place in the village where there were uh, a lot of people, including uh, a leper. And the Blessed One is how he was referred to, or it's how we translate the words from Pali. Having encompassed the awareness of the entire assembly, asked himself, now who here is capable of understanding the Dharma? He saw Supabuddha, the leper, sitting in the assembly, and on seeing him, the thought occurred to him, this person is capable of understanding. So, aiming at Supabuddha, the leper, he gave a step-by-step talk. That is, a talk on giving, a talk on virtue, a talk on heaven, He declared the drawbacks, degradation, and corruption of sensual passions and the rewards of renunciation. Then when he saw that Supabuddha the leper's leper's mind was ready, malleable, free from hindrances, elated and bright, he then gave the Dharma talk peculiar to awakened ones, that is, suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path to the cessation. And just as a clean cloth, free of stains, would properly absorb a dye in the same way as Supabuddha the leper was sitting in that very seat, the dustless, stainless Dhamma eye arose within him. Whatever is subject to arising is subject to passing away. 
So I, I read that phrase in the scriptures a lot, and you know, usually it's accompanied by a phrase, and the thousand monks before him were all instantly enlightened. And I just read that, and I think, well, I guess you had to be there. Um, but, but here he, he outlines the, the course of the teaching as he presented to people who, were, who didn't have any familiarity with him. There wasn't you know, any media there to announce him in advance. He just would show up in town. So he, talk, he gave a step-by-step talk, a talk on giving, a talk on virtue, a talk on heaven, declaring the drawbacks of attachment to sense, uh, sense pleasures and the rewards of enunci- renunciation and then the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths came at the end of the process. And that's where, that's where the meditation instructions come. He started by talking about giving. Um, the Pali word that we translate here, you're familiar with the word dana. Um, dana is usually the word that we use uh, to refer to generosity. But actually the word is, is, is translated more specifically as giving. There's a different word for generosity. Um, but giving is a practice, something that we can do. The Buddha said if you knew the value of practicing generosity, you would never let a meal go by without sharing some of your food with someone who has not. If you really knew, if you really understood the value of it. Um, it's not a very common characteristic. We all like to think of ourselves as relatively generous. But if you think of the people you know and are familiar with, how many people would you identify as generous? You know, probably not the majority. You know, it's, not a, it's not a really common... And what, what, how would a generous person appear to you? How would it feel to be around someone who was generous not just materially, but generous with, in spirit and heart. You know, it would be like to live with someone like that. Buddha was talking about um, letting go of the kind of grasping, holding on to, and opening and letting go. Um, the word dana is, as I say, is, is, is um, translated most specifically as giving. And so the practice of giving uh, is something that you, it's something you can do. And in Southeast Asian countries, the, the uh, giving of alms to um, monastics is a, is a specific practice. Uh, little children are taught, you know, they're, you know when they're really young, before they, they put a rice ball in the hand and shake it over the, the uh, alms bowl, and there's, there's a ritual to it. And it's a, it's a practice, it's something you can do, but it's just the outward behavior, it's the behavior of giving. The, the word chaga uh, in Pali, which is C-H-A-G-A, is what translates more generally as generosity. 
And it, it's, a, it's a generosity of, of mind in regard to material things, to um, not just give almost ritually as a practice, but, but uh, from, from the heart, from the mind, allowing our sense of possession to fall away. the sense of holding on the need. We're, we're really um, uh, practiced at holding on. And we, you know, I think we feel more secure holding on. <laughs> um, but uh, the whole ride is moving. So holding on doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get us very far. But the idea is to... Um, you know, learn to be open in in heart in regard to material things, not to regard things um, necessarily any more as as mine any any more than conventionally. Gill likes to say, you know, if we all went went out on the way out and we took somebody else's shoes and wore them home, the shoes wouldn't care. You know, um, ownership is is something in our minds. And that doesn't mean that we can't organize our lives in terms of that. But, you know, just before we had some, before the sitting, we had someone outside screaming about his car. I don't know quite what was going on, but he was very upset about his car. Um, You know, the possessiveness contains a lot of energy, which is not blissful and peaceful for sure. and then the, the, there's, there's one other level of generosity of, of giving. Um, that's, in a way, giving away um, even your, the, the elements, uh, um, our opinions, our, our thoughts, not, not, not clinging to them, but being open to others as to ourselves. You know, very open, easy, uh, non-possessive. Uh, the thoughts as we sit here and meditate, they come and they go. And uh, you might have noticed they don't, they don't usually get stuck. They may, re- they may be in a loop and repeat over and over and over, but they don't just seize up. Um, so abandoning abandoning the clinging and giving away uh, our, our um, claim to be right. You know, we really like to be right. And to just allow that, allow that um, to be shared at least. So the Buddha's orig- opening talk, his opening presentation when he would show up in town was to talk about the benefits of generosity of giving and the benefits for the heart and being in a way um, to, do, to develop I mean, you, can, you can go quite a ways towards full awakening by practicing uh, generosity of the heart and mind and actually I think each of these steps you know the talk on giving the talk on on virtue or ethical practice on heaven, on, on uh, the drawbacks of sensual passions and on renunciation and the Four Noble Truths, they're all, each one of them is uh, potentially a very powerful and complete practice in itself. 
the second the second element was um, virtue, which is um, the Pali word is sila. It's translated often as virtue. I think of it as ethical practice. You know, it's not a matter of judgment. It's almost not a matter of right or wrong. Almost, it's not. It's a matter of practice, like following your breath. The breath isn't right or wrong. It's just it's the way you center yourself and uh, keep your yourself anchored to the present moment. Well, ethical practice is contained uh, usually as as we um, as we learn it. Ethical practice is uh, represented by a set of uh, practice precepts that are adopted for purposes of practice. They're not a matter of, like I say, good or bad, right or wrong, but in terms of allowing. Uh, uh, the heart to let go of the kinds of clinging and compulsions that uh, make things worse for us and others. Um, because this goes to the same place as generosity practice, uh, letting go of the, the impulses for greed and, and anger that get us into trouble with ourselves and others and to restrain the behavior. Usually the Buddha would talk about, uh, as, as ethical practice, would be the practices to refrain from harming or killing other beings, to refrain from not taking, or to refrain from taking what is not freely given, to refrain from using the powerful sexual energy in ways that are harmful to ourselves or others. And... Uh, refraining from speaking falsely and harshly and using our speech to cause harm. So we talk about those those things and those are those in a way are a form of they are a form of generosity. You're giving in effect of safety to others. And so the the, the practice precepts are it's not so much that it's wrong to speak falsely, to tell a lie. In fact, there's sometimes when it's a good idea. If the Nazis are knocking on the door and saying, is Anne Frank in there? So, Can I tell a lie? I don't think so. Um, you know, so the underlying, it's, it's, an, it's a, a practice of engagement with your uh, experience and responding in a way that does not cause harm. The practice of the precepts, uh, or in, as part of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, right livelihood, those practices are the practices that ground ourselves in our daily walking around life. In the same way that while sitting on the cushion or, or on the chair while meditating, the breath grounds us and anchors us. So the Buddha put a lot of, of stock in in the, the practice, uh, an ethical practice. Not so much in judgment, right or wrong, good or bad, but as, a, as, a, as an effort toward freeing the heart from the kinds of compulsions that make things 
bad for ourselves and others, making things worse. For, the, for lay people, there, there are five precepts that are generally taken, including the four that I mentioned about not killing, stealing, refraining from sexual uh, misconduct and, and false speech. There's a fifth one, which is usually presented as, as refra- uh, refraining from the use of intoxicants. There, there another, there's a second tier of precepts that are taken by, uh, in, a, in Asia, often by lay people on um, full moon days or days of the phases of the moon, sort of once a week. Um, uh, there would be additional precepts, and they would, they would have to do with not eating afternoon and not participating in entertainment um, and not adorning oneself, not prettifying, prettifying, not paying attention to that. And the idea here is it's a little bit more refined. It's a way of of practicing with the restraint of um, our sense pleasures. Because there's nothing, you won't die not eating in the afternoon, but if you, if you decide not to eat in the afternoon, you can get pretty hungry <laughs> by oh, 1 o'clock, um, and certainly by, by the evening. And learning to deal with unpleasant physical sensation, in the same way as you sit in meditation with the thoughts arising and passing without clinging to them, because it's kind of hard, they just keep <laughs> coming and going. Uh, learns to, you learn to be able to deal with, with sensations as they arise and pass and change. Now, for, for, so there's, there's this, this second tier of ethical practice, uh, which um, actually be, moves beyond ethical practice and into the, into, uh, uh, the practice of restraint uh, of our um, sense pleasures, our preference for sense pleasures, Working with our our uh, our appetite and our desire for uh, entertainment, but there's if for people who become monastics, um, there are over two hundred precepts that they follow, and they include things that may seem kind of trivial. For example, if you hang your robe on a peg on a wall, the seam has to face the wall and not face out. You don't get to walk. I mean, to run. You don't get to run. There are a whole variety of even, uh, which seem trivial, but basically you're giving up your preference, even. Letting go of even your preference. It may sound, um, you know, extreme, but these are the, these are the, uh, when, you, when you let go of the impulses to cause harm, the Buddha describes the condition as the bliss of blamelessness. You now, if you think of the things that cause remorse in your life, regret when you look back, they're usually, you know, um, they found they found their their origins in wanting of some kind or anger of some kind, and often in completely misunderstanding a situation. 
so so these first two talks that that the Buddha would would initiate on on giving on generosity and on ethical practice would lead to um, a kind of freedom and well-being of the mind. In the meta suit of the phrase is freed from anger and ill will. Can you imagine what it would be like to have no irritation, not to experience irritation with the things that arise in our in our experience? It would, you know, be blissful. <laughs> sounds wonderful. Just the world would just shape up. <laughs> you know, it's a. Um, so the Buddha would then follow with, uh, with talk of heaven. Now, in the culture that he was he was encountering, you know, the talk of heaven. He was uh, this was a preliterate culture where the invisible world was pretty uh, pretty richly populated with gods and you know heaven realms. And so he was speaking to people of. Um, he was using a metaphor to talk about uh, the blissful realms, what it means to live with an open heart and restraining one's uh, activities from, you know, that might cause things to get worse. Um, And that would feel great, he said. And you can imagine for yourself what it would be like if we could, if the world were set up so that we could do that. But the point that he he would make is that, uh, and in this in this time there was a sense there was culturally an understanding about re- multiple rebirths over and over and over and over, and um, the Buddha would say that even life in the heaven realms eventually will change. Everything is impermanent. Everything changes. We've all sort of noticed. Um, we like it when it's we like that that fact. You know, this too will pass. That's that's pretty good when when things are not going well. But we don't like it so much when things are are, are going well. You know, we don't bring it up then. <laughs> um, but but he would say that even life in the heaven realms would pass, and we would be returned to um, the kind of life we experience now. The only freedom, he said, uh, the only route to unconditioned happiness is um, renunciation, letting go. So he would do the talk, uh, step-by-step talk on giving, on virtue, the talk on heaven, the drawbacks uh, of sensual passion. Ah, So he gets to sensual passion. I skipped one. What's wrong with all this stuff? Oh, I guess I didn't skip it, because it's the impermanence part. You know, if you come to depend on anything, it's going to change. It will, it will not stick around. You know, even the, even the nice things that we get, you know, they change, they, they age. Uh, the new car becomes an old car, the new partner becomes, oh, maybe I shouldn't go there. <laughs> but... You know, it's it's the job, it's the car, it's the new house, it's the you know the clothes, anything new, uh, you know, and becoming attached to them 
is setting yourself up for um, for disappointment. And the only unconditioned happiness the Buddha would, Buddha said he this is the lesson he would teach would be. Um, through the, the practice of, of renunciation. Now, he does, I actually don't like the word renunciation. It's a translation of a Pali word, uh, nekama. And renunciation has got a lot of pushing away. There's, a, there's an under, you know what I mean? It's, there's some aversion in there. And, and isn't, there, isn't it, get thee behind me, Satan? You know, there's, there's, there's some of that stuff in there, too. Um, it's more, the, one of the metaphors that the Buddha uses to describe it is, is as a, a snake shedding a worn-out skin. So it's not renunciation, it's just dropping away, letting fall away the kinds of compulsions and impulses that make things worse for us. And also the clinging to pleasant experience, because pleasant experience comes and it goes. Unless somebody here has gotten some, gotten stuck in the on position and it's all just pleasant, you know, it's it comes and goes. It's sort of like the weather. You know, there can be a great sunny, wonderful day, and then there can be storms and rain and wind and heat and fog and, you know, what did they just have back east? The snow, snow, apocalypse, something like this. The, the snow apocalypse. <laughs> Or it was snowmageddon. That's what it was, snowmageddon. You know, so I mean, you can, you can get all of that, and we get that all in our experience. It doesn't just stay put. You know, and the clinging to it um, doesn't help. In fact, you can actually pretty well pollute the most pleasant experience with, you know, frantically trying to make it last. Um, So we talked. So the the word abandonment may be, or just letting go, uh, may be a better um, a better word. Now, you know, a, a renunciation is just not a popular thing. You don't, you know, it's not. <laughs> we put a banner outside that said, "Come in, renunciation taught here." Probably be fewer people flocking to the doors. The Buddha said, um, oh, no, that's not what he said. (laughs) Well, he said that too, but... He said, he was talking to his cousin, Ananda, and he said, he was wondering, he was commenting on how people aren't particularly fans of abandonment, renunciation. He said, so it is, even with, for myself, before my awakening, um, I thought, renunciation is good, yeah, seclusion is good, yeah, but my heart didn't leap up at renunciation. It didn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. The thought occurred to me, what's the cause, what's the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm? Then the thought occurred to me, Ah, it's because I haven't seen the drawbacks of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. And I haven't understood the rewards 
of letting go. I haven't familiarized myself with it. It's why my heart doesn't leap up in it. There's a little couplet in the uh, uh, in the Dhammapada. I went in the library in there and looked because I thought, well, in this place, there's got to be a copy of Gill's translation of the Dhammapada, but apparently not. Um, but the couplet. Um, I'm going to not get it as a couplet, but the idea is about giving up a lesser happiness for a greater happiness. And when I read that, the first thing he said, you know, the Dharma is a greater happiness and the lesser happiness are all the things that we content ourselves with uh, in, our, in our daily lives. And I thought, well, you know, the problem is if you don't know that greater happiness, then it's, you know... Um, it's you're taking it on on faith, which is tough. But the but it seems that the, it is possible to um, experience it a little bit at a time during the meditation practice, during the practice of uh, uh, precepts in our lives. We can we can see what happens if we let you know just let go a little bit here and a little bit there and see. Um, the teachers say, if you let go a little, you'll have a little freedom and a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom and a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have total freedom and total peace. Not, not easy to do, uh, because we're, we're conditioned to hold on. So he would explain the, the benefits of, of renunciation, of letting go, and then... And then he would um, he would give the Dharma talk peculiar to the awakened ones, which is the talk on the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths came at the end of his introduction to his teaching. I mean, basically, he would come and introduce his teaching uh, in an evening, presumably, and he would go through these stages, and then he would talk about. Uh, the Four Noble Truths, and the first of which um, is the truth of the unsatisfactory nature of our experience. it's, It's not, it's the way it is. If satisfaction is important to you, you'll be dissatisfied. Because our experience will not stay put, it won't stay what we want it to be, no way. The bad stuff's going to come, the good stuff's going to go. Yeah, the good stuff will come, and the bad stuff will go also. But when the bad stuff goes, you know, it's, it's, you know when the headache goes, that's good, but when, they, when the good times go, it's not so good. So the, so, and most of us know from our experience in our lives, just by checking it out, they're not unmitigated Parties. No, it's not. Uh, there's. It's like the weather. It, it comes and it goes. And if we want it to be all good, all pleasant, all the time, happily ever after, um, we're going to be disappointed. And we learn that, sort of. But that doesn't keep us from trying. You know. The Buddha said that. So the fir- that was the first. The first noble truth is the recognition 
of the unsatisfactory nature of our experience, how it's, it's built in, it comes with the territory. And it comes with the territory, the, the origin of this dissatisfaction is uh, craving and ignorance. We, we think we're going to make ourselves happy by getting what we want. It's not just me, right? I mean, <laughs> that's sort of how we navigate, you know? Um, all, but n- no matter what we get, it changes in our, in our grasp. No matter how wonderful at the moment, it changes. And, and the dissatisfaction comes from not wanting it to be the way it is. Not wanting this impermanence to be the way it is. So just not recognizing um, the impermanent nature of things causes us causes us distress and suffering. But the Buddha said that the cessation of that suffering is possible. It's possible um, to do in this lifetime. The cessation of the craving, of the thirst, actually, um, for satisfaction. It's possible to abandon that, to let go of that, to not uh, be the slave to our desire for pleasant and our you know, anger and irritation with unpleasant experience. You know, when unpleasant experience comes, we try to make it go away. And we try to make things more pleasant. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that it's not always successful. And, you know, you can try to make the unpleasant go away and make it worse. Of course you could make it, it could become, it could become less unpleasant. But it's not consistent. The path of the cessation, the path to the cessation of suffering is the Eightfold Path. And so this is, the, this is the path that he said is peculiar to the awakened ones. And it has to do with understanding things as they are and not making things worse with our behavior, with our action, and cultivating our mind so that we see more clearly and make fewer mistakes. By mistakes, I just mean by doing things that that enhances our our own suffering and the suffering or distress of others, rather than attenuating that same that same suffering, the same dissatisfaction. So I like that this is that this is a gradual path. The Buddha said, just as the ocean has a gradual shelf a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sudden drop-off only after a long stretch. In the same way, this doctrine and discipline, this teaching, has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression, with a penetration to awakening after a long stretch. 
So this is a this is a uh, a lifetime practice. This is you know it's harder than learning a language, or even harder than learning to play a stringed instrument. Which, if you ever tried, <laughs> you know it's hard. It's hard. It's it's relatively simple to understand, and we can practice it as we sit with our with our meditation. We can practice it in the world with uh, um, the use of of the precepts as some as some uh, practice guides. And over time, we can find ourselves free of the compulsions that cause our suffering. Increasing as we as we go with the practice. So let me just um, take a few minutes and see if there are some some questions. Or you know, the gradual path is is a broad swath through our our behavior and um, our thinking, and it's not always what we expect. Because I think the I think the the uh, the precepts and ethical practice are not an option for the Buddhist path. No. For the path to 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 uh, to freedom. Well, I thank you all for your attention.